Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. After months of trying to prove that he was actually the victim in an illegal game run by the Central Intelligence Agency, Rick Ross finally heard his fate. Guilty. Life in prison without the possibility of parole. Rick couldn't believe his ears. He sat there in the courtroom, unable to speak. He looked over at his mother and saw her crying. He thought to himself that he would never see her again outside of a prison wall. For nearly a decade, Freeway Rick Ross was the top man when it came to selling crack cocaine in the United States. His drugs were sold in every major city in the country, raking in millions of dollars a day. And yet here he was, sitting in a San Diego courtroom, about to go to prison for the rest of his life the victim of a three-strike sentencing law his own drug empire had helped create. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. Today, we continue our dive into the life of the notorious Los Angeles kingpin, Freeway Rick Ross, the man responsible for the 1980s crack epidemic throughout the United States. Today, we'll discuss the height of Rick's drug empire and how his main South American contact led to his destruction. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. 1984. Ronald Reagan had been president for three years. 
Reaganomics was in full effect and the Cold War was in its final years. During that same three-year span, Freeway Rick Ross and his crew, including Ollie Newell and Norman Tillman, had cornered the Los Angeles drug market with a blockbuster new product, crack cocaine. As we learned last week, Rick saw the potential crack had in the untapped market. Powder cocaine was too expensive to sell in Rick's urban, mostly African-American community. But crack, a relatively inexpensive and easy-to-make form of the drug, had potential, and Rick capitalized on it. Rick put his brains to work and started selling pre-made crack, known as Ready Rock. And in a few short years, he went from selling a few thousand dollars worth of cocaine in a day to close to a million dollars worth each day. His cocaine supply came from Ivan Arguelas and Henry Corrales, Nicaraguans living in Los Angeles. They had connections with Colombian drug cartels and saw potential for Rick to push their product in the United States. The relationship was fortuitous for everyone involved. But in late 1983 or early 1984, Rick met another Nicaraguan supplier who was higher up on the food chain, Oscar Danilo Blandon. This relationship would push Rick to heights he and his friends could never have dreamed of. Danilo Blandon was born on July 29, 1951, in Managua, Nicaragua, to a fairly wealthy family of landowners. After studying in college abroad, Blandon returned home to work on his father's estate. After that, he began working within the Nicaraguan government, which was under the control of dictator Anastasio Somoza. When Somoza was overthrown by the communist Sandinista National Liberation Front in 1979, Blandon knew he was in trouble. He fled to the United States with his wife and daughter, seeking political asylum. They lived in Miami for about a month before moving to Los Angeles, where Blandon sold used cars for a living. In 1982, Blandon met another Nicaraguan exile named Norwin Meneses, known in the community as the Padrino, or Godfather. The two took a liking to each other, and Meneses made Blandon an offer. Sell cocaine and send the money back to Nicaragua to help fund the resistance effort against the Sandinistas. Blandon, still bitter about having to flee his home, easily agreed. According to Blandon, his relationship with Manessis only lasted a year. Soon, he was buying and selling from Colombian, Nicaraguan, and Mexican cartels directly. Where he got these high-profile contacts is a mystery. But that didn't matter by the time Blandon met Rick Ross in the back of Henry Corrales's car in late 83 or early 84. By then, Blandon had the product and he knew that Rick was the man to sell it. According to Rick, he had to pay Corrales $60,000 for the introduction to Blandon. Funnily enough, Blandon also paid Corrales $60,000 for the opportunity to meet Rick. It would be the last big payday for Henry Corrales, because the introduction meant that he was completely 100% done supplying drugs to Rick Ross. Rick and Blandon drove all the way to Rialto, 60 miles east of Los Angeles, talking business the whole time. Blandon offered to sell Rick cocaine for only $20,000 per kilo, compared to the $34,000 he was paying Corrales. 
According to Rick, he purchased 50 kilos a few hours after that initial meeting. 50 kilos was the largest purchase Rick and his crew had ever made in a single buy. Rick Ross and Danilo Blandon were officially in business, and business was about to boom. Ali Newell recalls that once Blandon came on board, everything changed. He provided all the essential tools to take them from street hustlers to nationwide kingpins, pure cocaine, money counters, guns, infrastructure. Rick claims that he could get any amount of product he needed in about 45 minutes and, through his network, it would be gone by the end of the day. Early on, Rick estimates that he was selling over a million dollars worth of cocaine a day because of Blandone. Part of Rick's success in 1983 and 1984 came from opening up what he called mega houses. The mega houses worked differently than normal crack houses in that they sold at a set price, $100 per rock, no negotiating. Each ounce of cocaine was cut into 14 crack rocks, each containing roughly two ounces of cocaine. The small, relatively affordable doses made it easy for addicts to get a quick fix, and Rick was making $400 more per ounce than if he were selling the old-fashioned way. Rick predicted each mega house would make him nearly $40,000 a day. Knowing the risks involved, he made sure he employed non-addicts and rotated them constantly. Ever the pragmatist, Rick knew that at any point, the house could be raided or robbed and he wanted to minimize any kind of loss. The mega houses were a hit. $100 gave addicts enough of a fix the moment they bought it, and it was easy to tempt them into a second dose for just another 100. By the end of 1984, Rick had about eight mega houses set up, complete with drive-throughs for the addict on the go. Thanks to Blandon's supply, he was moving over 125 kilos of cocaine a day, and the money was rolling in. It is important to remember that Rick and his friends were still in their early to mid-20s and making more money than they could have dreamed of. They bought fancy cars, expensive houses, top-dollar clothes, you name it. Every year, they went skiing together in Aspen, and when the Lakers played, Rick and his friends were always there. But through all of it, Rick remained focused and humbled. Despite indulging in some of the flash, he never let the money get to his head and distract him. According to friends, he was always willing to show the rest of his crew the path to success. However, Rick couldn't reveal his path to success to the IRS. In 1984, he bought numerous auto parts stores and refurbished a 22-unit hotel called the Freeway Motor Inn as fronts to launder his drug money. As business flourished all over Los Angeles, it was time to expand his operations to the rest of the country. Sometime in 1984, an old tennis associate of Rick's introduced him to his brother, Mike Wingo, who lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and was looking to get into the game. Rick had no idea how much cocaine was going for in the Midwest, so he flew out to St. Louis to meet Mike and began talking business. Rick gave Mike a starter kit of drugs to sell. A few days later, Mike called and introduced Rick to another person interested in dealing in St. Louis. In no time at all, business was rolling in the gateway to the West. 
Around this same time, a friend of Rick's approached him about tapping into the Cincinnati market. Like he did with St. Louis, Rick gave his contacts a starter pack and waited for the results. In a matter of months, Rick managed to conquer two Midwest cities. Soon, Rick's cocaine was hitting the streets of every major city in America. Kansas City, Seattle, Detroit, New Orleans, Atlanta, and the Big Apple itself. But with success comes notoriety. Rick had been on law enforcement's radar for some time, and it was about to get a lot worse thanks to the man who made him king, Danilo Blandone. When we come back, we'll look at the investigation that brought Rick's empire crashing down. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. Freeway Rick Ross was at the height of his drug trafficking career in the mid-1980s. By his own admission, 1985 and 1986 were his best years. He had his product in just about every major city in the United States. He was living the life of a Hollywood gangster. Cars, houses, money. The parallels to Scarface, which came out early in his career, were not lost on him. But for all of Rick's efforts to keep his money clean, the auto parts stores, the hotel, the boats and houses, it wasn't enough to keep him out of trouble with the law. In October 1986, while Rick was in St. Louis checking in on the local operation, he got a phone call saying that his girlfriend Marilyn had been arrested, along with a few others, and that her stash house had been raided. Rick immediately flew back to L.A., Unfortunately, as soon as he got back, he learned that Mike Wingo, his man in St. Louis, had just been arrested with over four kilos of cocaine in a car that Rick had given him. To make matters even worse, Mike had been selling cocaine out of his own house. While Rick was visiting St. Louis, he had been using his real name. He feared there might be evidence that could implicate him in Mike's arrest. While all of this was going on, Rick's brother David started being followed by patrol cars. During one of these interactions, David was pulled over and the police mentioned Rick's name. It was clear the police knew who Rick Ross was. Rick assumed he was dealing with dirty cops looking for their cut of his fortune. He made sure that he and his boys were always protected by keeping one of the city's best defense lawyers, Alan Fenster, on retainer. He didn't come cheap, but Rick wasn't going to let anyone in his crew go to prison. Eventually, Rick learned that there was a warrant for his arrest in St. Louis in connection with Mike Wingo. But once it became apparent that Mike was not going to testify against his boss, the charges against Rick were dropped. In the years the DEA had been keeping tabs on Rick, there was still no substantial evidence that could connect him to a crime. According to Rick, 
What allowed him to get by all these years without any trouble from the authorities was how careful he was to hide his identity. He used fake IDs whenever he could. He made sure his car windows were tinted, and he never gave out his real name when he didn't need to. Rick Ross was simply a name without a face. Rick recounts how he and Ollie once stumbled upon a raid and watched a friend of theirs, who wasn't even a dealer, get arrested by the police. Later that night, the friend returned, and Rick asked what had happened. The friend revealed that the police mistook him for Rick Ross. On another occasion, Rick's gym was raided. He was able to hide amongst the rush of people leaving without the police ever noticing he was there. Despite his ability to remain persona non grata, Rick's houses were still the frequent subject of police raids. His friends and employees were routinely arrested, cocaine and weapons were seized, and thousands of dollars were lost. One raid in 1987 brought news that Rick took very seriously. While the cops cased the house, Rick's friend overheard them discussing what was officially called the Freeway Ricky Ross Task Force. The task force was a local, state, and federal-wide unit created in January 1987, aimed at taking down Rick's drug empire. A nine-officer team from the LA Police and Sheriff's Departments led the effort, which would eventually include the FBI, DEA, and Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Rick and his crew didn't understand how big the multi-agency investigation really was, but the constant, sometimes simultaneous raids of different stash houses made Rick nervous. He figured that the heat would eventually die down, but for the time being, he would keep his ear to the ground in case more trouble was brewing. The heat did, in fact, die down. Even though Rick knew he had eyes on his operation, he continued business as usual, making sure he beefed up his security just in case. By 1987, Rick's operation was selling 100 to 200 kilos a day, with each stash house bringing in $100,000 per day. Now these numbers come from Rick personally, and it's hard to tell how accurate they are. That being said, prosecutors later estimated that during Rick's career, he brought in close to $1 billion, so it's likely that Rick's numbers aren't too far off. In April 1987, Rick and his friends Ollie Newell and Cornell Ward were leaving one of Rick's auto shops, the Big Palace of Wheels. As they began driving home, Rick noticed an unmarked car tailing them. Another car pulled up right next to them. Inside, they saw the green jackets of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Ollie recognized one of the deputies as Robert Sobel, who he'd previously had a run-in with. The moment the light turned green, Rick, Ollie, and Cornell took off. A chase followed. After a while, Rick told Ollie to take the wheel and keep his foot on the gas. When Ollie had control, Rick rolled out of the driver's seat as the car was still in motion and took off running. As Rick ran, the police opened fire. Eventually, Rick got away, but Ollie and Cornell were arrested. After Ollie and Cornell posted bail, they met up with Rick and filled him in on the details of their arrest. Both men were thrown to the ground and beaten. 
Then Cornell watched as one of the deputies took a kilo of cocaine from one of the police cars and planted it in the trunk of Rick's car. Rick couldn't believe his ears. His lawyer, Alan Fenster, managed to get the charges against Ollie and Cornell dropped. But charges were promptly brought against Rick. The police claimed that Rick shot at them while he was running away. After conversations with both Alan and his mother, Rick agreed that the smartest thing to do was just to turn himself in. During interrogation, he swore that he hadn't shot at the police, and he even took a lie detector test to prove that he was telling the truth. But the investigators still went forward with the charges. At preliminary hearings, Alan Fenster requested access to the tapes from Rick's interrogations. He had the tapes analyzed, and when it came back, he was able to prove that the tapes were tampered with, cut and spliced together to make it look incriminating. The judge dismissed the charges. Rick Ross was a free man. The brush with the law put Rick on edge. His girlfriend Marilyn had just had a baby daughter, and he knew he needed to get his new family away from Los Angeles, away from the stress of his life of crime. Rick, Marilyn, and their daughter moved to a quiet suburb of Cincinnati. He retired from drug dealing and lived peacefully for a while. Rick claims he was retired for a year before he got another call from Danilo Blandone. Other reports say it was a few months. Regardless, while Rick was in Cincinnati in 1987, Blandone reached out to him about getting back into the game. Rick agreed to restart his once-booming Cincinnati operation. But Rick knew that this time around was going to be the last. He was getting tired of the game. Once he saved up a bit more money, it was time for him to get out and turn his focus to legitimate businesses. He already owned several hotels that he knew could be profitable as more than money laundering fronts. But before he could make his exit, he needed to finish his last hurrah. Rick traveled back and forth between LA and Cincinnati, buying kilos by the hundreds from Blandone at $10,000 each. Despite their years working together, Rick had never asked Blandone about his backstory. But at a party one night in around late 1987 or early 1988, Blandone told him that the reason why he was selling drugs was because there was a war going on back in his home country. The drug money was being used to help the rebel army fight for their land. That was all he ever divulged to Rick. Neither of them realized that small, personal fact would soon unravel an international scandal. In September 1988, one of Rick's men was sent by bus to Cincinnati with nine kilos of cocaine. Unbeknownst to Rick, the courier noticed that while in New Mexico, drug-sniffing dogs picked up traces of the cocaine while they were stopped at a bus stop. Scared, the courier fled, leaving the suitcase behind. The DEA kept watching the suitcase, waiting to see who would claim it once it got to Cincinnati. A few days later, Rick and his associate, Alfonso Big Al Jeffries, drove to the Cincinnati bus depot to meet up with the courier. Big Al went inside and asked about the Greyhound coming in from Los Angeles. The courier was nowhere to be found, 
but Big Al claimed the suitcase they'd left behind. DEA agents immediately sprung and arrested him. Nine kilos of cocaine was enough to put a man away for decades. Big Al ended up serving 20 years for the bust. The event scared Rick so much that he packed up and returned to Los Angeles. Upon his return, Rick began working in construction, keeping a low profile. But it was too late for his exit plan. Rick was already under investigation in Texas for conspiracy to traffic cocaine. The grand jury handed down an indictment in late 1988 or early 1989, and a fugitive warrant was issued for Rick. To make matters even worse, during his interrogation for the Cincinnati bust, Big Al broke and turned on Rick, revealing details of his various trips out of Los Angeles to major cities around the country. On June 8, 1989, Rick was indicted on federal conspiracy charges. For months, Rick kept living under the radar in Los Angeles, and nothing came of the fugitive warrant. But in November of 89, while pouring concrete at a construction site, Rick saw an unmarked police car come screeching up to him. Rick didn't hesitate. He took off running. The police opened fire. Rick ducked inside a nearby house and barricaded himself inside. A two-man SWAT team discovered him hiding in a closet and arrested him. By arrested, we mean the LAPD officers beat Rick mercilessly. Rick says they used flashlights and frying pans. Evidence photos show numerous cuts and bruises inflicted by the officers. Ultimately, on September 5, 1990, Rick pled guilty to conspiracy to traffic cocaine, resulting in a mandatory 10-year sentence. He was sent to Boone County, Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati, across the Ohio River. The 30-year-old Kingpin's reign was officially over. But his story was just beginning. While in prison, Rick was approached by the Department of Justice. The FBI was in the midst of a large-scale anti-corruption case known as Operation Big Spender, intended to crack down on police corruption. The DOJ saw Rick as a key eyewitness to corruption within the Los Angeles Police Department. Years earlier, Rick and his lawyer, Alan Fenster, had hired a private detective to look into the corrupt police officers they'd encountered. Now, Rick and Alan were able to hand over all of the information they had gathered to the FBI. Rick testified against the corrupt officers in the LAPD's Freeway Ricky Ross Task Force, including the specific men who had planted the drugs in his car after he, Ollie, and Cornell were chased by the police. He was backed by video evidence of corrupt detectives stealing money during various drug raids. However, the jury found it hard to believe a drug dealer over the police department. At the end of the day, the big spender trials resulted in mostly acquittals or deals, though 19 officers were convicted. The only shining light came in the form of a reduced sentence for Rick. His 10-year sentence was cut down to four. In September of 1994, Rick Ross completed his time and was released from prison. Now 34, 
he returned to South Central Los Angeles to continue running his auto shop, the Big Palace of Wheels. Rick thought his drug dealing days were over. He got his second chance and he was not going to spoil it. He would go on media tours, giving interviews about his drug dealing days and time in prison. He wanted to make amends for the damage that he inflicted onto his community. Rick began working with community organizers, setting up youth centers and donating money to churches. In no time at all, he had transformed himself from drug kingpin to philanthropist. But after a few months of life post-prison, Rick got a phone call he wished he'd never received. It was a ghost from his past, a man he never expected to hear from again, Danilo Blandone. Coming up, we'll unravel the truth behind Rick Ross's rise to success. Now, back to the story. In early 1995, Rick Ross had just gotten out of prison and was looking forward to restarting his life. Then he got an unexpected call from an old associate. Danilo Blandone and his wife Chipita wanted to have Rick over for dinner. According to Rick, it took six months before he and Blandone actually sat down. When it came down to it, Blandone told Rick that he owed his Colombian suppliers money and he needed Rick's help to sell 100 kilos of cocaine. What made this deal different from the rest was that Rick wasn't actually going to be buying the cocaine. He was merely the go-between. Blandone even offered Rick a $300,000 finder's fee if he could set him up with a buyer. Rick was torn about the decision. At the time, he also owed some people some money, and this would be an answer to that problem. And Blandone reassured Rick that this wasn't going to be a typical business deal. It was simply a friend helping another friend out of a jam. What could one small favor hurt? Rick contacted an old friend of his, Leroy Chico Brown. Chico had built himself a nice drug operation, and Rick hoped that if Chico and Blandone hit it off, Blandone would leave Rick alone. Finally, everyone agreed, and they set the date for the deal, March 2nd, 1995. Rick and Chico, along with San Jose Mike, the man who first introduced Rick to cocaine 15 years earlier, met Blandone in a Denny's parking lot in Chula Vista, just south of San Diego. Blandone approached Rick and Chico and asked for the money. Chico asked where the cocaine was, and Blandone pointed towards a Chevy Blazer across the parking lot. Rick remembers how antsy Blandone was, so much so that it made Chico nervous. But Rick reassured Chico that everything would be okay. Chico handed Blandone the money, and Rick and San Jose Mike walked over to the Chevy Blazer and began unloading the drugs. Right on cue, DEA and local authorities jumped out of their hiding places. Rick immediately jumped into his friend's truck and took off. As his tires screeched out of the parking lot, Rick turned and saw Danilo Blandone staring at him, laughing. He'd been set up by his one-time partner. Helicopters flew overhead as several unmarked cars pursued Rick's speeding truck. Rick remembers thinking that this was the end for him. His life was over. He crashed into a hedgerow, jumped out of the car, and ran for his life. 
When he finally stopped, he was met by a dozen local and federal officers. For the second time, Freeway Rick Ross was in custody for cocaine. He was 35 years old. In September of 1995, six months after he was arrested, Rick Ross met a journalist named Gary Webb in the visiting room at the San Diego Metropolitan Correctional Center. For two months, Gary had been investigating the stranger-than-fiction tip that drug traffickers had been bringing drugs into the United States on behalf of the CIA. One of the major drug traffickers involved was none other than Danilo Blandon. Gary explained that Blandon had been affiliated with the right-wing Nicaraguan guerrilla group known as the Contras. The Contras were fighting against the ruling communist regime, the Sandinistas. Blandon, under the tutelage of Norman Manessis, sold and trafficked cocaine into the United States and used the money to help arm the Contras. More shockingly, the CIA was aware of this and used Blandon as an undercover operative. Congress had cut off funds to the Contras once it was revealed that the guerrillas were committing human rights violations. So the CIA covertly helped fund the Contra effort by selling contraband all over the globe. The biggest scandal, which had already broken in the mid-80s, was that senior government officials had secretly facilitated the sale of weapons to Iran, which was under an arms embargo. The scandal, known forever as the Iran-Contra affair, nearly brought down the Reagan administration. But Gary Webb had realized the scandal didn't stop there. Throughout the 80s, the CIA had been working with numerous known drug traffickers in their effort to send weapons to the Contras. The full picture is so complicated, it would take several podcasts to untangle all the threads. But the relevant detail for Rick Ross was that Danilo Blandon was one of those CIA operatives. The details of what happened are still under dispute, but as Webb laid it out in his book, Dark Alliance, the CIA had known that Blandon was bringing cocaine into the United States, and they knew that Rick Ross was his main buyer. But the agency turned a blind eye because they also knew that Blandon's profits were being sent to the Contras. In 1992, Blandon had been arrested in San Diego and was facing up to 10 years in prison. While awaiting trial, he began cooperating with the DEA and had his sentence reduced to 48 months. He ended up only serving 28 months and was released in September of 1994, the same month Rick was released from prison in Texas. As part of his deal, Blandon agreed to become an informant and help bring down Rick Ross, who, in the DEA's eyes, was a much more serious threat. Rick was completely stunned by the story. He realized that this entire time he was nothing more than a patsy to a man he considered his friend and mentor. And more than that, Rick had unknowingly been part of one of the biggest scandals in American history. During Rick's 1996 trial, Alan Fenster used the information that Gary had acquired to help Rick's defense. Fenster attempted to paint Rick as a pawn in a game being played by the CIA, and even alleged that the CIA's relationship with Blandon was illegal. But the jury, which happened to be entirely white, 
found no sympathy for Rick's plight. On November 19, 1996, the verdict came in. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. One of the unforeseen consequences of Rick's success? The three-strike law. To combat the spike in crime related to the nationwide crack epidemic, pioneered by Rick himself, the federal government had passed a law mandating that an offender's third felony charge would automatically result in a life sentence. This was Rick's third felony strike. After his Dark Alliance series was published, Gary Webb received both praise and criticism for his investigation into the CIA, the Contras, and the crack epidemic. But the criticism was much stronger than anticipated. Gary was let go from Mercury News, and he had a hard time keeping a job because of the stigma of the allegations he had uncovered. Even after the CIA Inspector General admitted in 1998 that the CIA oversaw and covered up a relationship with drug traffickers in Nicaragua, Gary's reputation was tarnished. In December of 2004, Gary Webb was found dead in his home with two bullet wounds to his head. His death was ruled a suicide, though internet rumors speculated that he was killed by the CIA. As Rick points out, Gary was a rebel who fought against injustice, and unfortunately, he paid for it. Rick spent the first six years of his life sentence at the San Diego Metropolitan Correctional Center. He survived by transferring his cocaine business skills into peddling cigarettes and candy, the main currency in the pen. He also conquered one demon that had haunted him his entire life, his inability to read. At age 38, the former multimillionaire and drug kingpin still had no idea how to read the most basic words. Now, with nothing else to do, Rick took it upon himself to learn his letters. With the help of a cellmate, he finally learned what the Los Angeles School District failed to teach him two decades earlier. It was a tough battle, sounding out words and creating flashcards. But soon Rick was reading books like the autobiography of Malcolm X and Awaken the Giant Within. Not long after that, Rick began reading law books to help with his appeals process. Three words stuck out to Rick as he was reading up on the law. Continuous criminal spree. What that means is that throughout his entire career, Rick performed one single continuous crime spree, trafficking cocaine. When he was sentenced to life in prison, the court said that his previous convictions in Ohio and Texas were separate crimes, thus making him a three-strike offender. Rick and his lawyer argued to the Court of Appeals that his entire criminal career was actually one long crime. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed and reduced Rick's life sentence to 20 years. In March of 2009, Rick Ross was paroled. He stayed at a halfway house for two months before being released back into society. He was finally a free man, for good this time. Today, Rick, now 59, uses his life as a cautionary tale for those, especially youngsters, who wish to enter the drug game. He goes to schools around the country and speaks upon the consequences of drug dealing. For all of the philanthropy that Rick now engages in, 
it will unfortunately never make up for the damage he did to his community. Throughout the 1980s, crack plagued the United States, especially in Rick's hometown of Los Angeles. It's been reported that cocaine-related hospital emergencies, such as overdose, rose 12% in 1985 from 23,500 to 26,300 and 110% in 1986 from 26,300 to 55,200. And at the same time, drug-related crime shot up dramatically. Fights over territory left bodies on the ground and the streets covered in blood. Between 1985 and 1991, gun deaths among teenage boys rose 154%. The homicide rate among young black men, in particular, more than doubled by the time the decade closed. The astronomical rise in crime and increase in drug-related medical emergencies eventually caught the attention of the politicians and law enforcement. Local police began to increasingly militarize their force. LAPD was famous for raiding crack houses using a tank with a battering ram attached to it. A community that already watched the police with a suspicious eye now viewed them as just as violent and destructive as the Bloods and Crips. In 1986, the federal government dropped the hammer on drug sentencing. A law was passed that created a 100 to 1 ratio for crack and powder cocaine sentences. Meaning that, for example, if someone was caught with either 6 grams of crack or 600 grams of powder cocaine, the minimum sentence was a mandatory 6 years in prison. Someone holding a quantity of crack that weighed the same amount as a candy bar could find themselves in prison for the rest of their lives. It's been widely noted that while people of all races use both crack and cocaine, powder cocaine is popularly associated with upper-class white consumers, while crack is considered a quote-unquote urban black drug. Those racial connotations are reflected in the incarceration rate that resulted from these new sentencing laws. The National Institute on Drug Abuse shows that in 1991, 79% of the 5,000 drug-related prison sentences were handed down to black offenders. Justice Department statistics from the 80s and 90s prove that not only are black individuals significantly more likely to be sentenced to prison time for drug charges, but the sentences they receive tend to be longer. Rick Ross may not have realized the impact his actions would have on an entire generation and his entire community. Through his drug trafficking, he helped end the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, whether it be through drug overdose, gang warfare, or life sentences in prison. Today, Rick takes responsibility for his actions and has gone to great lengths to seek redemption. He says that when he started selling drugs in the late 70s and early 80s, he did so to escape poverty. For nearly 10 years, he did just that. But as impressive as Rick's story is, we can't forget that his success came at the expense of communities around the nation. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Joe Guerra and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.